ahead of ourselves. Okay, if you'd like to open your Bibles or your corner posts um, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. What a great song to have just sung before we sing, uh, before we read from God's Word. Uh, As we've just sung um, to each other and to the Lord, um, we want to ask that God feeds us on His Word, feeds us till we can take no more. So with that in mind, let's pray before we hear God speak to us. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, as we've just sung, our prayer is that you would feed our souls, that we would hear your voice speaking to us through your word. Father, glorify your name and bless us, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness. And a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say or... You may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God made man upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Sometimes life just doesn't make sense, does it? I'm sure we've all known people, good people, who have died young or experienced tragedy of one kind or another. 
whether it's a young mum who is suddenly struck down by cancer, or a man who has dedicated his life to serving God full-time in ministry and been killed, or a child who gets suddenly sick and a few weeks later dies of a rare illness. Sometimes life can seem so unfair. And it makes you ask the question, what then is the point? What's the point of even following God when the wicked seem to prosper? When people who are guilty of serious, serious crimes live long and relatively happy and worry-free lives? What's the point when those who don't fear God or have any real care for others seem to be better off than those who do? Just listen to how Asaph uh, describes this kind of meaningless situation in Psalm 73. He says, this is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, says the psalmist. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Did you notice that? He says, in vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Solomon makes the exactly the same observation in verse 15. He says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. You see, contrary to the old saying, cheaters never prosper, the reality is, Sometimes they do. Sometimes people get away with all kinds of wrongdoing. For instance, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, is widely acknowledged to be, have been a very, very hard businessman. And he left, uh, he often left a trail of personal destruction such as not providing child support for one of his own children. But he still did really, really well. He became one of the wealthiest men in the world. Or take Mark Zuckerberg as another notorious example. While he was studying at Stanford University, two brothers named Winklevoss came up with the idea behind Facebook. They employed Zuckerberg to develop it and he stole the idea from them and launched it himself. It ended up going to court and they were paid $65 million in compensation. He was found guilty. But he has still become one of the richest and most powerful men in the world. We live in a crazy world. A place where the righteous perish and the lives of the wicked often prosper and even are prolonged. In the midst of all of this, though, Solomon teaches three profound truths as to how to live wisely in this crazy world. The first is to not be like a Pharisee or a tax collector. That is, don't be over-righteous, but also don't be overly wicked. 
It sounds a little strange when you first read it, doesn't it? I mean, is Solomon saying that we shouldn't strive to be holy as God himself is, is holy? Or, for example, is it okay to fudge on your tax returns or to be a little bit sinful doing the things that we know we shouldn't do, but just if we do it a little bit, is that okay? Well, obviously, no, that's not what he's saying. Solomon is warning against the kind of mistake that the Pharisees made. And that is, we shouldn't be self-righteous or, in that sense, overwise. We shouldn't go further than what the Word of God says because that will only cause us harm or personal misery. The Pharisees were infamous in Scripture for making this kind of spiritual error. For instance, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus rebukes them for failing to honour their mothers and fathers. They failed to properly care for their parents. Why? Because in their minds, their time and, and their money was dedicated to God as a gift. It's what they called korban. So whatever time or effort or attention that I should give to you, mum and dad, well, I've actually, I've dedicated it to God. It's a gift from God. So I'm sorry that you miss out, but there's a higher spiritual purpose for me. It's a great example of what it means to be over-righteous. And Jesus rebuked them because he says, you're failing to actually obey God's word over here because you've gone beyond God's word over here. You see the problem. And can I just say, a little bit more controversially, I think the same thing sort of happens with Christian attitudes towards alcohol. Getting drunk is clearly a sin, but how often have we come across people uh, who think, well, that means then it's wrong for every Christian to drink alcohol, which is just not true. It's an example, I think, of being over-righteous. Getting drunk is a sin, but actually wine is a good gift from God. On the other hand, though, neither should we completely hand ourselves over to sin. Uh, to be so dedicated to our parents that we don't have time for God or for Christian ministry. Giving ourselves over to selfishness or sensuality is, can I just say quite frankly, as stupid and as foolish as being self-righteous or proud. In fact, I think a really good example of this is uh, how many um, times I've spoken to professing believers who justify watching any form of television show because I have Christian freedom. I'll go further as a specific example. I remember teaching scripture many years ago at one of our schools in, in Sydney and uh, we had a lady called Patricia Wirakun, who's a lovely Christian psychologist. Um, and she challenged all the girls at this particular girls' school that if you're watching Game of Thrones, you're watching porn. And they were shocked. Even many of uh, the Christians there were saying, oh, no, I can justify it. But you can't. 
It's an example, I think, of being indulging in sin, which for the Christian should be really inappropriate. It should be something that we not flirt with, but that we flee. And so to be either over-righteous or over-wicked is, as Solomon would say, hevel or meaningless. The key to avoiding either extreme, though, is this, to have a healthy and holy fear of God. It will keep you from licentiousness, lawlessness on the one hand, and it will keep you from legalism on the other. Fearing God will enable you to avoid both mistakes. To reverence him more than either our sinfulness or the sensuality that our heart wants to pursue or that self-righteous religiosity that our heart might want to pursue. Truly fearing God keeps us from both kinds of errors. The second truth that Solomon teaches us about how to live in this crazy world is not to listen to everything people say, especially about us personally. I wouldn't necessarily have come up with this, but I think it's profound. Have a look at verses 21 and 20. Or 20 and 21. This is an incredibly helpful bit of advice because we're often tempted to take what people say to heart, especially if it's about ourselves. And maybe I should say, we're often tempted to take every little thing people say to heart, especially if it's about ourselves. And the result is it can have a really negative impact on our, our relationships and we can end up holding on to the hurt, which then festers into bitterness for years and years and years. And yet Solomon says, how often have we done exactly the same thing? How many times have we said things about someone in our own family or maybe even our friends and we've immediately regretted it? Sadly, we're all guilty of doing something like that, Solomon says. And that's why Solomon says we shouldn't be so sensitive that we hold people to an account for every single little thing that they say or didn't say. Solomon says, verse 21, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Because if you listen long enough, you will. Your heart knows how many times you yourself have cursed others. You see, we've got to remember in this life under the sun, it has been completely turned upside down. And that's obviously going to express itself through all kinds of dumb and hurtful things which we ourselves are guilty of doing. So give up trying to hold everybody to the same standard that you yourself have failed to do. That's not to say that we shouldn't aim for perfection, especially in our speech, because we should. But we shouldn't hold other people to this unattainable, absolute standard which no one can live up to, especially you. Does it make sense? The third and final thing that Solomon has to say to us about living in this crazy world is even more serious. Because the pain that it inflicts is even more severe. 
And that is we need to make sure that we don't give in to what the wisdom literature often refers to as Madam Folly. Now, I draw your attention to what Solomon says in verse 26. By the way, if you're familiar with the wisdom literature of Solomon, you'll know that the most famous chapter of all is chapter 31 of Proverbs, where wisdom is personified as a woman as well. So don't think that somehow this is sexist, okay? This is a terrible trap that we must make every effort to avoid, and that is being lured away emotionally or sexually by someone other than our spouse. The Bible constantly warns us against the consequences of falling into this particular, particular trap, and they are always disastrous. Solomon says in verse 26, And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is a snare and a net and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. We live in such a horribly broken and crazy world, don't we? And adultery would have to be one of the most common, but also one of the most disastrous decisions a person could make. Because it routinely destroys lives, marriages and families more than anything else. And rather than it be something like the world wants to present as fun and as exciting, it does the exact opposite. The book of Proverbs puts it like this. If you're taking notes, you can jot down chapter 6, verse 27 to 29 of Proverbs. Chapter 6, verse 27 and 29. But even without notes, I want you just to sit back, maybe even close your eyes and listen to what the Word of God says. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. And then he goes on to say this. He says, men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he is starving. Yet... If he is caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it cost him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse the bribe, however great it is. You see, sometimes people might think, or you might be tempted to think, oh, but I'm emotionally distant from my spouse, or we're physically estranged from my spouse, and I can justify that affair. But you know what? It's in a small sense, a bit like the starving man that steals food. In some sense, you can understand it, but it's never justified. And if you're caught stealing food and you pay the price, just remember this, greater is the price for adultery. 
because there is no price that you can pay that will restore things to how they were. You know, I know that sometimes marriages break down, even amongst Christians. And please don't hear me saying that you're condemned or anything like that, because the glorious truth of the gospel is that we can all be forgiven by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's at the core of our faith. As we saw last week, there is always hope and there's always restoration. But what the Bible is saying here is don't be duped by the delusion that the affair will make your life better. It won't. Because the words of an adulteress might be smoother than oil, but in the end, her actions are as bitter as gall. Now, verses 27 and 28 of Ecclesiastes 7 are some of the most difficult verses in the, uh, to interpret, in, I think, in the entire book. Because when you first read it, it sounds as if Solomon is being, well, let's be frank, more than a little misogynistic. That somehow or other, women are less righteous, or commonly so, than men. You know, there's one good bloke in a thousand, but not so with women. No good women anywhere. That's how it sounds, isn't it? We were discussing this passage at staff meeting during the week and Libby made the interesting suggestion, I think it came out of her, her growth group, that there, yes, there might be one upright man in a thousand, but an upright woman is one in a million. But while we all know how a godly wife is a precious and beautiful thing, I don't think that's what Solomon is saying here. Let me just read it to you again. Solomon says in verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, for some strange reason, the NIV translates verse 28 to read, While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. To be fair, they do put the word upright in a little set of brackets to show that they've added the word in to try and give you a better understanding or a sense of the original meaning. But I think it actually confuses rather than clarifies um, what the Bible is saying in this particular instance. So if you take a look back to verse 20, you'll see that Solomon clearly believed that everyone is a sinner. In fact, he even specifies men in particular. Verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So Solomon is not saying that women are somehow or other more sinful or less upright than men. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right or is upright and never sins. Obviously, that's the case. Either you'll know that to be true, either through the Bible, which is truth itself, or through your own lived experience. This should go without saying, but it really needs to be said. Everyone sins, especially us men. We're masters at it. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, 
There is no one good, let alone upright. No, not one. This was such a big thing in my first congregation that some people in my congregation, whatever you'd say to them, they'd say, hey, Mark, how are you going? And you'd go, I'm doing good, meaning I'm healthy. They'd say, always, no, Mark, there's no one good. No, not one. It's like, oh, come on. You know what I mean? But no, it's not what the Bible's saying, Mark. There's no one good. So what's Solomon saying here then? Well, while there are a lot of different interpretations, I think the most helpful is to read what Solomon is saying here autobiographically. You see, elsewhere in Scripture, we're informed that Solomon infamously had 700 wives and 300 concubines, which, obviously added together, is 1,000 women. Solomon was infamous for this. But the problem is, with this literal millennium of intimate partners, was not just the massive number but the fact that most of them worshipped foreign gods. What Solomon did then was in direct contradiction to God's command. And it was something which Scripture explicitly warned the king of Israel not to do. And because we're told that if he does this, it will end up leading his heart astray. Now, if you just turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 17 for a minute, I'll show you what I mean. Because this was something which the Scriptures explicitly warned the Israelites against. And I think it gives us insight into what Solomon means. Because he did it. Deuteronomy 17, and I'm just going to read to you from verses 14 to 17. It says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you take possession of it and settle in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. And then Moses goes on to say this. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. But foolishly, this is exactly what Solomon did. Which is all the more ironic when you realise that the Lord gives Solomon the greatest gift of wisdom out of anybody in the history of the world and he ends up being a fool. At the end of 1 Kings chapter 10 and the start of 1 Kings chapter 11, we're told how Solomon gathered horses, horses from Egypt, silver and gold, women and especially foreign women. So with all of that background in mind, what Solomon is referring to here is I think likely himself and his own foolish sinful folly. Speaking in the third person, he's saying, I knew this man once who had a thousand wives, but none of them brought him meaning. It was all hevel. It was all a chasing after the wind. But none of them concerned. This is the point. Out of all of those thousand women, none of them were concerned with the biggest question of all, what is this life all about? What's its meaning? 
None of them. None of them were concerned with it. It was all vanity or meaningless. How many romantic relationships do you have to have to realise life is heaven? Because for Solomon, they all led him away from the worship of the one and true living God. What's more, while he was searching for ultimate meaning, and here's the key, none of the women, none of that thousand, that he was in a relationship with were. None of them were concerned about it. They were consumed with everything else under the sun. Just like people today on Instagram. All of which makes sense of what Solomon says next in verse 29, doesn't it? Because then he writes, This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Significantly, the word for upright in Hebrew is used here. No brackets are needed because it really is there. Because what the Lord God had created both men and women to be was upright. We were all originally made in his image to reflect his righteousness, to reflect his glory, to be in relationship with him. But with the fall, our life under the sun now means this. We are profoundly distracted. We've all gone in search of many schemes. We've all tried to find meaning in all kinds of different ways. Now, I think a really pertinent illustration in this regard is the movie Forrest Gump. Don't want to embarrass you, but I could ask probably for a show of hands of who hasn't seen it. Don't have to do it. It's a bit of a strange film in many ways because it's all about this eccentric, probably, let's be honest, autistic main character um, played by Tom Hanks. But the thing is, is he's extremely successful in everything he does. Whether it's from long distance running, to table tennis, to even running a shrimp business. Everything Forrest Gump touches turns to gold. If he stays in a hotel, Watergate's happening over the street. But he doesn't care. No matter how successful he is, no matter how many different things he turns his hand to, none of it gives him meaning. His heart ultimately belongs, I think, this is where he probably tries to find meaning, is in his childhood sweetheart, Jenny. But even that is characterised by rejection. In one particular scene, though, another character called Sergeant Dan asks Forrest whether or not he's found Jesus. It's quite a poignant moment in the movie because it's as though Forrest has discovered something about the meaning of life which no one else has. Forrest, have you found Jesus? And you know what he says? He looks at him blankly and he says, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, sir. That's it. That's what Solomon's saying. It's meant to be humorous, but it's a great example of what life under the sun is like. It's characterised by sin and foolishness because Forrest spends his whole life going in search of many things, even that one sweet thing that he had from childhood. But none of them satisfy. None of them gives him meaning. And he doesn't even know that he's supposed to be looking for Jesus.
As Solomon says so famously, it's all meaningless. You could search for a thousand jennies and none of them would bring you fulfillment. Even more tragically, you could find that one jenny and she would die. Everyone, Solomon says, is just so distracted. We're all so consumed and preoccupied with all of these different schemes. Thank God, then, for Jesus. Because as we heard earlier from Luke's Gospel, the reason why Jesus came to earth is to seek and to save what is lost. A good mate of mine up in New South Wales, um, who I went through college with, was a, a police sergeant. And he said something, some phenomenal figure of like 30,000 people every year in New South Wales go missing. I can't believe that. But apparently that's the figure. 30,000 people in New South Wales go missing every year. But he said, you know the great irony is? 99% of them don't know they've been reported as missing. <laughs> Their family has lost touch with them. Their friends have lost touch with them. So they, they call the police and they go, we can't find our mum. We can't find our dad. They've moved and they didn't leave a forwarding address. So they're classified as a missing person. I think what a great example of what most of us in life are like. According to God, we're missing persons. And we don't even know that we're on the register. We're all like Forrest Gump. We've all gone in search of many schemes or maybe that one person that we think is going to bring us meaning. You see, it's easy to see the book of Ecclesiastes as being overwhelmingly negative. But Solomon just keeps on saying to us over and over again, it's just meaningless. And if he left things there, then yeah, it would be pretty depressing. Everything under the sun... This fallen world is characterised by either sin or self-righteousness of people flipping between one extreme or the other, going in search of all kinds of different schemes, saying hurtful and painful words, and in particular, the presence of broken marriages and relationships. All of those things demonstrate that this current world is meaningless. And the sooner you realise it, the sooner you'll come to know meaning. It's all Hevel, it's all vanity. But what is so helpful about the book of Ecclesiastes is it just keeps stripping away this innate delusion for us to be distracted by all of those things. Of going off in search of a scheme other than God. Because the truth of the matter is where meaning is found is when God finds you. Is when the one who came to seek and, and find and save the lost rescues you. That's where meaning is found. And as such, it makes you ask the question, so what, or even better, whom should I be living my life for? And the answer is obviously Jesus. For God has made us upright, to know him. That was the intent. To love him, to serve him, to worship him, to live for him, 
As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or as he says in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what gives life meaning in this crazy world. For to fear God is to come to know and fear Jesus. Because it's the only through knowing him that we avoid all extremes. Can I say as we stand and sing our song of response today, let's make this our prayer for a deeper consecration to him. Let's not stop being distracted by the many schemes in this world and seek to know Jesus. Like as Paul says, that he is your rock and your centre. Let's turn over away from our sin or our self-righteousness, as the case may be, that we might know what it means to be in a right relationship with God. Let's lift up our hearts to him and give him our worship. Let's stand and sing.